0: Hey folks, Pattern is a disability insurance company and they know that you wanna be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at patternlife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.
0: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have with me today Dr. Michael Scott, who is a professor in anesthesia and critical care at VCU Health in Richmond. He's the division chief of critical care there and the medical director and lead for their ERAS program. He is internationally known for his work with ERAS, and with uh, that in mind, I wanted to bring him on the show, and I'm thrilled that he accepted, to discuss Um, both fluid management in ERAS cases, and then also kind of how we can figure out what kind of fluid or how much fluid patients may need. So I think this is going to be really interesting. I will say, just by way of disclosure, that Uh, Dr. Scott has been either on the advisory board or received speaker honoraria from a variety of companies that make various cardiac output monitors, and while it will be just a small part of the discussion, we will talk about those monitors, and so listeners can take that into account as they will, but Dr. Scott, thank you so much for
1: coming on the show. Uh, Thanks, Jed. It's a real pleasure.
0: So let me start by just asking you about you. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, how you got where you are uh, and how specifically you got interested in uh, ERAS, uh, early recovery after surgery, uh, as a kind of focus for your research.
1: Yeah, well, I've had a broad training. I, I trained in my medical degree in the University of Birmingham. I then went abroad to Australia and did internal medicine. And then came back to the UK. And in fact, I, I became triple boarded. I went uh, from internal medicine then into anesthesia and critical care because I enjoyed the physiology. Okay. Uh, and then I got an attending job in a place called Guildford, the Royal Surrey County Hospital, which is just outside of London. I developed academic interests with the University of Surrey and University College London. And then basically in Guildford we as well as being a small hospital serving a a population of about 400,000 people, we served a greater population for cancer treatment, because in the UK, cancer treatment is centralised. So we had a population catchment of up to 2 million in some specialties. So this gave a a huge opportunity for developing pathway cares. Uh, So in about 2002 we developed our first enhanced recovery after surgery protocol in colorectal. And we realized that we could get patients better very quickly after minimally invasive surgery with a enhanced recovery protocol. And basically getting the protocol, getting the minimal invasive surgeries and minimal blood loss and then accelerating care afterwards by de-escalating all the drips. Uh, catheters, etc., and feeding the patient, we found patients were getting better very, very quickly. So, we, we published in 2009 a series of 23 hour stay collectomies, which at the time uh, most patients were spending about 12 to 14 days for the same procedure. Right. What was interesting, though, is as, as our research went on, we, we realized that rapid, uncomplicated recovery led to reduced complications better long-term outcomes and, in particular, better cancer outcomes. And that's where, really, I I think we need to focus the next bit of our basic science uh, on of of why we get this downstream effect. So, really, the interest in enhanced recovery is getting accelerating recovery after surgery. And, and as you know, there's 20 core elements, uh, optimizing the patient before surgery, minimizing the injury, and, and blood loss and uh, all the components of anesthesia that we do, of which a key component is reducing opioids and getting the hemodynamics and fluid uh, therapy right. And by that, mean, I, f- I mean flow and pressure. And then finally, the morning after surgery, it's all about de-escalating, getting the drip down and mobilizing the patient and feeding them. So it's really very simple stuff, but it, the outcome have been profound and I think you're aware being at at Johns Hopkins that I'm part of the HRQ grant with Mike Grant and Lisa Wicks and uh, everyone spreading this around the whole of the USA Uh, and we're now getting ERAS into about 750 other hospitals in the USA.
0: Yeah, that's incredibly...
1: Yeah, it's been very good really and and it's really being adopted across the whole world now as a sort of new standard of care.
0: Absolutely. And it's amazing work you guys are doing. And I've done, um, and listeners uh, will know, we did, uh, Mike Grant and I did a, an episode on specifically looking at the cardiac ERAS pathway that's being developed or has been developed. Um, and then earlier, one with Chris Wu, who I, I know you know, Mike and um, Chris and I talked about kind of ERAS in general. Um, but what I wanted to focus on with you, and one of the things you just mentioned, uh, is specifically fluid uh, management in uh, in these cases because it's, it's such a key piece. Now, granted, there's lots of important pieces, but let's talk about um, fluid management. So, it, And I think part of this is that it can be very tricky. Uh, let's start basic, though. What are in the general goals of fluid management in an ERAS case?
1: Well, I think we have to think of, well, what is the role of the anesthesiologist? And really what you think we're trying to do is optimize cardiac output, oxygen and nutrient delivery. Uh, maintaining normal intravascular volume. Uh, because if we do that, we avoid the flux across extracellular fluid and therefore to the cells. Uh, and to do this, we need to optimize flow, but also maintain mean arterial pressure. Uh, and also you can throw into that equation of oxygen delivery, maintaining normal hemoglobin. Uh, I think that's important because we now know that anemia is a, is a, is a risk factor uh, for complications and I think we can put anemia into hemodynamic therapy because if you start with an anemic patient you're in a very different position than someone who's already been optimised and got a normal hemoglobin. Um, so, so really I think if, if we accept that our role as anesthesiologists is to optimise that and the other thing is to give the minimal amount of intravenous fluid to achieve that because we know that too little fluid is bad for you Causing hypoperfusion, but we also know the downstream effects of too much fluid, uh, and the and the gut edema, the uh, pulmonary complications, etc. Right. So it's very easy to give fluid, but once you've given it, you have to know that it's truly going to benefit the patient. So the way I think we've sort of feel that the, that why ERAS is actually making fluid therapy easier is you've got three key areas. First of all, we're avoiding fluid shifts. The second, we individualize the fluid and the the flow and the pressure during surgery. And then post-optively, we avoid a lot of this fluid overload that used to happen uh, in previous times because we get the drip down earlier. So if you follow the ERAS principles, really, we ensure patients are hydrated going into surgery. So we give them carb drinks the night before and morning of surgery. A lot of debate about the benefit of the carb. I think the key thing for me is if you give people a carb drink, they take it. So you've got compliance of hydration. So for me, that's a very powerful bit of the carb drinks, was if you say just drink some water, no one does.
0: And is that you know, because the carb drink is, tastes better or because it feels like uh, an actual important thing where water is so, so correct. kind of basic? I think
1: it feels like a medicine. Uh, and that's why I think patients embrace it. So here we've actually, at VCU, we, we give the maltodextrin drinks as packets because then patients really do take them. Whereas mm. when we said take a bit of um, Gatorade or just some water, no one really bothers because they think, they think it can't be that important. Interesting. Um, the other thing is avoiding bowel prep if you don't need to, although in the U.S. a lot of people still give bowel prep for colorectal surgery with antibiotics to reduce SSI. Um, so, so the key thing is we start with the patient hydrated in the middle of the road. Now, I think the oral component of fluid is important in ERAS because everyone thinks ERAS is fluid restriction. It's not. It's, it's the right amount of fluid at the right time. And far more of the fluid, you'll see, you'll see a similar volume, so it's just more is given orally. So in other words, we, we give more oral fluid up to the time of induction of anesthesia, and we're much quicker to start oral fluid afterwards, which means you can take the IV down. So I don't like people talking about right. this idea of fluid restriction because it, it's not. It's about maintaining the body's homeostasis. So that's the first real step get the patient in the middle of the road by being hydrated. right. Let me just ask you about
0: something. Sorry, Mike. Let me just ask you about something you mentioned. So, um, you know, you said in the United States, a lot of surgeons are still doing bowel preps and and antibiotics in preparation for bowel surgery. So, is is, does that then imply that in other countries they are not? And do we know that that's uh, uh, you know should we be? Is there a movement to try to change that in this country?
1: There there is a movement, but I think there's uh, because of the healthcare drivers in the US, the fact that SSI is penalized that there is evidence that oral antibiotics with bowel prep reduces that. However, gotcha. when you look around the rest of the world, if you do a normal ERAS uh, pathway and maintain flow and pressure, the SSI instance is actually as good, if not lower, than the U.S. So I think there's multifactorial things going on here, and it's the health economics that's driving that.
0: Okay, interesting. Um, all right. So you were saying that's the first thing is get start them. Don't make sure they're not starting off low. Yes,
1: yeah, so start in the middle of the road, basically. So then the surgeon will use their do their job to minimise blood loss and injury. Injury is important because if you've got lo- a, a large area of dissection, you're going to get larger fluid shifts and and also increase oxygen consumption post op because there's there's more healing that needs to happen. Right. But really, I, the way I look at the next bit is we need to optimize the patient on the operating table and the way I look at physiology for fluids is you've got basically a patient who is either spontaneously breathing or ventilated I think the, the physiology is very different and then they're either septic or not septic now in elective surgery we can take the sepsis out so really all we have to then say is what's the physiological changes during ventilation and then when they go back return to spontaneous breathing what are we going to do differently there? And I think what, uh, what most people feel is we know that you need to give a fluid bolus at the time of induction of anesthesia and going on to positive pressure ventilation. So, for instance, the relief study gave 10 mils per kilo in the, in the liberal group and 5 mils per kilo in the restrictive group. In our own work using uh, esophageal Doppler to optimize people, we found there was a large variation in what people needed between 7 to 16 mils per kilo. So, uh, and it makes sense because people are different shapes and sizes. So the very fact you're putting someone on positive pressure ventilation to normalize their stroke volume after that, that's the sort of figures that we found. So I think 10 mils per kilo is a good figure to start with so on ideal body weight. So that would be about 750 mils for someone who's a 75 kilogram man. And then, and
0: that's in terms of sorry, that's your kind of just baseline a, a
1: bolus going on, you know, over the first sort of twenty minutes as you're inducing and getting on the on with the uh, with with the, about to start the surgery. That that's what we found is a, is a reasonable amount if you're using cardiac output monitoring to give to basically avoid uh, a reduction in your stroke volume. Okay. Then what you're trying to do is maintain normal intravascular volume and mean arterial pressure through surgery. So there's a huge debate on how to do this. Um, We've got many different monitors, but also we've got many studies that show that if you've got an ASA1 patient, you probably don't need the monitors. You just need common sense of basically keeping up with a 2 to 4 mil per kilo per hour uh, uh, background rate and then giving fluid boluses according to blood loss or other fluid shifts. And that's where we can talk later about the monitors. But I think the key thing that is important is whatever you do is if you optimise the patient at the start of surgery, use your clinical sixth sense, uh, as we all have as anaesthesiologists, and then optimise the patient at the end of surgery with the legs down, back level, that's a very good start and finish for the patient. And the reason I mention that is that a lot of surgeries are done laparoscopic now and not, not open. And because right. of the fact you've got a pneumoperitoneum and raised intra-abdominal pressure, you're effectively operating with a small aortic afterload, like a small aortic cross clamp uh, for, the gener- for the duration of surgery. Right. So, so the normal monitors don't always show what you want. There's, there's strange physiology. So if you head down, you've got a lot of venous return. If you head up, you've got minimal venous return. And of course, if you head up, it doesn't mean to say you might need volume because your intravascular volume might be normal, but it's pooling in your legs, so you need a vasopressor. And right. likewise, if you're going head down for three hours, you don't want to give lots of fluid, because otherwise you'll end up with cerebral edema. But when you're level at the end, then that's the time then to work out what the what the volume shifts would be. So, right. the, so the second part is all about individualizing flow and pressure and getting the interruptive bit right. Then the, what we've got here in, in developing at VCU is we are picking people up in the PACU who have major surgery by ultrasounds, and we use basically inferior vena cava M modes and look at the phasic flow of the IVC as well as the calibre. And our aim is that no patient leaves the PACU uh, hypovolemic. So we give fluid bolus based on LTTE guideline. And obviously we would check the patient's heart and they've not got right ventricular dysfunction and backing up. But right. they're breathing spontaneously at that point. And I think the evidence is as long as you keep the tank filled, the patient will do it themselves.
0: And so and then, you are looking at, uh, you're taking patients the PACU, you're looking at the IVC, and you're looking at respiratory variation. Is that right?
1: C- correct. So we look at both the, the overall phasicness and whether it's collapsing, but also the absolute caliber uh, on an age and weight-based uh, nomogram so obviously if you've got a 75 kilo man and the ivc's eight millimeters then it's very small and you want you know you give a fluid bolus till it's up to say 20 millimeters or that you haven't got huge inspiratory changes so the idea is you then you've got two points to pick the patients up at the end of surgery if you're using cardiac output monitoring and also in the pacu
0: and are you looking for a certain percentage change with, with respirations or just – Well, a, it's
1: interesting because the, 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 all the books and guidelines say a 40% change uh, on deep inspiration. But in reality, there's lots of things that can affect venous tone. So you can get changes with epidurals, with drugs. So you've got to be very careful that, that you can get venodilation due to those other things. So we're still piloting this, but I think what's important is that we're picking up the ones that otherwise were going very wrong, where you're collapsing to almost empty, right. and then we're making sure that they're full. So I think if, you're, if the sort of narrowest part of the IVC during phasic waveform is not kissing, it means that you have always filling the heart throughout the cardiac cycle. So therefore, you shouldn't get any stroke volume variability other than normal uh, respiratory pattern. So it won't be exaggerated. So that's our aim, is just to avoid that, that overt, uh, covert hypovolemia. So okay. that's another way of picking people up. And then, basically, we then put them on a background IVI till the morning after surgery. Most patients are getting n or fluids, you know, protein drinks or fluid in the, in the evening, unless there's a contraindication. In the morning after surgery, we take that IV down. And that avoids this two to three days of an extra three litres of salty water. And it's the salt as well as the fluid overload that leads to the problems downstream. And I think uh, that's been one of the most important things of enhanced recovery after surgery is the fact that we've got rid of this stay on the IV, which affects mobility, but also leads to this gut edema and pulmonary complications. So in right. summary, really, the three things are, start in the middle of the road with the hydrated patient, Get them right after, before you start the injury, uh, and you can talk about monitors shortly and how you can do that. Use your common sense through the surgery, keeping up with blood loss and using a background, re-optimizing at the end when the patient's flat, the abdomen's closed, there's no gas in the abdomen. And then pick them up in the pacu, and then the morning after surgery, it's making them a free person, eat, drink, sleep, mobilise, uh, and getting their salty water down.
0: Absolutely. So let me ask a couple questions. So uh, some of our protocols say uh, to replace uh, blood loss uh, with albumin. Is that something that is pretty widely um, recommended?
1: I, I, I can't say that, the, that I've got strong recommendations. I, I think we know that, that we've gone through all these solutions of colloids versus crystalloids. I think the first thing is we do recognize normal saline does give you a downstream signal of morbidity, mortality, and hypochloremic acidosis. Right, One or two bags probably doesn't make a huge difference, but, but it's probably better to use balanced solutions like Hartman's or Ringer's lactate. When you're starting to lose blood, I think you can use some crystalloid for, for smaller volumes, but then as the volume goes up, yeah, I think most people now are using a colloid such as albumin, and obviously then when you get to a certain level, you need to think about the, what the nadir hematocrit to the patient is where they're going to get organ dysfunction. And then you'd have to think about blood products and, and, and fresh frozen plasma. But we're hoping that for most major surgery now, when it's planned and you've optimized the patients, you you shouldn't be giving blood products for the majority of major surgery for common procedures now.
0: Right. Okay, great. So then let me ask you this.
1: Uh, Let's say
0: I'm trying to um, assess how much fluid to give my patient. And obviously some of this is going to come into what we're going to talk about in a minute about using some special monitors, but let's just say that I'm looking at, uh, you know, maybe pulse pressure variation, things I can look at if I have an A line, but don't necessarily have another monitor. So I'm looking at pulse pressure variation or systolic pressure variation. And, uh, you know, it looks like uh, there's a significant amount. Now, a couple things. One, uh, does it, Should I say to myself, well, part of this may be because I am giving this patient vasodilating substances, whether it's inhaled, uh, volatile anesthetic, or whether it's propofol, and does it make sense to put someone on a low-dose vasopressor like norepinephrine at maybe, you know, 0.04 mics per kilo per minute uh, to just counteract some of that vasodilation that I'm causing before I make a decision about whether to give them fluid?
1: I think what you're saying is very pertinent because we sort of kid ourselves that we don't use many vasopressors and yet you go into any anesthetic room, uh, you know, any operating room at the end of a case and there's usually most of a stick of phenylephrine used plus or minus some ephedrine. Yep. So I think it's time that as anesthesiologists we recognize that we use vasopressors as part of normal practice. And that all we're trying to do is keep everything normal. And all the drugs we do in the physiology tends to reduce our, 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 you know, as you say, have vasodilatory effects. So wouldn't it be better just to normalize that and use low-dose vasopressors, whether that's phenylephrine or norepinephrine, we can discuss later. And in fact, when you go to places like Germany, they they routinely will co-induce with five mics of norepinephrine and you go in and they've got a propofol infusion together with a norepinephrine infusion. They do exactly what you say. They will right. maintain everything w- with a low dose of norepinephrine. Uh, and if you keep it as an infusion, it still means you don't lose all these other information that you can see whether your patient truly needs volume or not. It's when you keep upping and downing vasopressors that makes it difference. So therefore, the scientific way of doing this would be an infusion and not giving these sticks and giving yep. boluses. So I, I agree with you there. I think the, yeah, the, I, I, the, the zoning is in, is important. I think we've got clear zones now since the relief study that Paul Miles did because there's been this huge discussion over liberal and restrictive. Right. And everyone talks about the Brandstruck study, which was liberal against restrictive. But if you look at her restrictive group, is actually the same as the new Paul Miles relief study liberal group. Um, right, and as I say, I don't think we should use those terms anymore. It's all about the right amount of fluid at the right time. But the thing about the relief study that's so important is that is when you look at the two groups, they were limited, trying to get zero balance on one group, and then uh, a liberal group, uh, see where they landed. And what's important is if you do mils per kilo on ideal body weight on their body weight post uh, 24 hours post stop. The restrictive group was 0.3 mls per kilo overweight, so i.e. they were pretty much zero balance. Right. And the other group were about 17 mls per kilo, so they were within 20 mls per kilo. And we know within 20 mls per kilo post structive day one, you don't get all these other complications. And the only right. signal they found between the two was, was renal dysfunction in the, in the zero balance group. Now, we still don't know if zero balance is, is bad for you because, of course, they didn't actually know whether the patients were hydrated before surgery. So that group might well have been going hypovolemic for certain times, and that's why there's right. the AKI signal. But to me, the biggest thing about relief was it gives us a safe zone now. So we know that if we don't do more than 20 ml per kilo, over, so one and a half litres of fluid, over their admission weight, most patients are going to be safe post-doctor day one, by which time you can immobilise and get the drip down. So right. I think immediately we now know that if we zone fluids and think about them a bit more, if we hydrate our patients and land them post-op to day one at 20 mils per kilo, uh, between 10 and 20 mils per kilo over their normal weight, which makes sense, we're going to get a reasonably good result. And then the rest is all the fine-tuning, all for for patients that are higher risk with cardiac morbidities.
0: Right. And I think there's some really important stuff there. I mean, I tell my residents about the relief trial that, you know, I think it's not – it doesn't make sense to me to think of it as liberal versus restrictive. I think it's, you know, super restrictive versus reasonably restrictive. And, uh, you know, and then maybe what that showed, as you say, is that, you know, somewhere in there, but certainly being reasonably restrictive uh, is safe and
1: makes sense. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um,
0: all right. And so so I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think, you know, uh, in addition to, like you said, Anesthesiologists needing to kind of realize and own up to the fact that you know uh, we use quite a lot of pressors and we use them as boluses that that cause intense vasoconstriction when you know in a short amount of time, as opposed to very gentle. Uh, approaches of a low dose drip. And the other, I, I also think we need to work with our surgical colleagues um, because this idea that, uh, you know, oh, oh, it's totally fine to use uh, sticks of phenylephrine and ephedrine, but if you start a levofed drip, that is something terrible is happening. And I think we need to work on uh, changing those those paradigms as well.
1: That's right. And the other thing we need to do is work on the fact that if you give dilute peripheral norepinephrine, your, your arm doesn't fall off. I mean, we know that surgeons infiltrate solutions with, you know, one in 80,000 epinephrine, and we also give one in 10,000 epinephrine via peripheral IVs at at, at codes, and people's arms don't fall off. And yet, the first thing that happens if you put peripheral norepinephrine in, and someone says, oh, you've got to stick a central line in. Right. And yet, yet we're only going to be using these for a few hours. So it might be that we need to look at using uh, anterior cubital fossa veins and just using larger, longer midlines as a safe way of giving these drugs.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, the um, I would think it was the sensor trial uh, that looked at uh, starting, you know, everybody on 0.05, all all, uh, patients with sepsis, starting them on 0.05 mikes per kilo per minute of norepinephrine versus, you know, not, and then just taking everybody down the usual surviving sepsis pathway. And one of the interesting findings there was that the patients who had many, I think maybe even more than half of the patients who were on the in the, levo, in the norepinephrine arm uh, had peripheral lines and got it through peripheral line and did not have any increased rate of uh, tissue damage.
1: That's right. And I think the other good thing is, is we, we've got real zones now of safety with norepinephrine. We know that uh, up to 0.1 mites per kilo, I mean, it, 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 we know that that's okay. Uh, we know that when you get into 0.2 or above the, the Either you've, you've overrung out the patient, you should be giving a fluid plurus, or they're truly septic. So, right. as you say, if we start with these low doses, but just keep track of them and don't just escalate the vasopressors, then we're not over squeezing the circulation. Then we won't get complaints from the surgeons.
0: Right. Great. So, and now we come to the point of, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could uh, get a feel for whether a patient does need more fluid and what uh, amount of fluid might increase their uh, cardiac output and their delivery of oxygen to tissues. In the absence of uh, some of the newer monitors, what we have traditionally done is really looked at blood pressure, which um, is probably not the best surrogate Um, So tell me a little about that. Uh, What are the problems with just using blood pressure and what what options do we have to get to tell us some information about uh, fluid management uh, in the operating room and in the ICU?
1: Okay. Well, I think if we can start by subdividing our patient groups into laparoscopic stroke robotic surgery where the physiology is different and then open. And we'll start with open surgery because everyone's familiar with that. Sounds good. I mean, there you haven't got a flow restrictor, so blood pressure tends to really be what it is uh, and reflect the circulation more accurately. I think, uh, as you mentioned earlier, so, we, so we've so we got various devices that we can look at, looking at pulse pressure variation, or if you've got an R2 or a line where you're looking at the area under the curve to estimate stroke volume, you can do stroke volume variation. And these are just relying on the fact that it, basically you're, you're looking at as if you're giving mini-fluid boluses and what's, what's the change in, in, in your stroke volume. And obviously, if you've got a stroke volume that's varying beat to beat by a large amount, then your flow time is being impaired and you're, you haven't got enough preload to fill the heart through uh, each cycle. So you're getting variability. To do this, obviously, we need a, 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 stroke, a, a tidal ventilation of about 8 mils per kilo. Uh, And with the emphasis on a protective line strategy, we we actually say 8 mils per kilo with optimal peak. Because although 5 to 7 mils per kilo is a recommendation, there's no evidence 8 is bad. And it's only really when you get 10 to 12 that we know that that's probably not a good idea. So we choose 8 mils per kilo on ideal body weight so that we can then use these other variabilities such as pulse pressure and stroke volume variability.
0: And you and probably you only this, need to go up to 8, right, uh, for yeah, for, a moment, for a minute yeah. while you're measuring. Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, and in fact, uh, we, we just tend to sit there and optimize the peak. And obviously okay. looking for the higher the stroke volume variability as it, make, as it sounds, then obviously you're getting higher beat-to-beat variability, so it means your preload probably isn't optimized. Now, people use different cutoffs. I use about 14% for stroke volume variability, and I use about 12% for pulse pressure variability. That's just where I've come to. Uh, isn't okay. a, that isn't an, a, a, a manufacturer's recommendation or anything, but that's, those are roughly what I, I, I think works for me. Um, and obviously there's different ways you can do this. There's, there's monitors which do it off the PLEF, uh, off, which is good. There's ones that do it off the arterial line as well. Uh, and so there's lots of different options out there at the moment, so all, all of which you can all incorporate into your anesthesia machine.
0: And right, so and what are these um, monitors telling us? What are they? What information are they giving us uh, that we don't get from blood pressure?
1: Right. Well, well pressure isn't flow, and, and I, certainly, you know, my my way of addressing this is fill flow pressure. So you fill the tank, optimize flow, and then you generate pressure. If you do that, you've got a balanced circulation. Right. So the problem with pressure is you can have a high pressure and a low flow. Um, and likewise you can have a low pressure and a high flow in such as sepsis so I do believe that you need some way of of knowing what flow is now if you've got a normal heart then if you fill it appropriately you will get normal flow whereas if you've got someone who's got impaired cardiac function and even just a stiff ventricle from hypertensive heart disease with diastolic dysfunction it is a lot more difficult and the other thing is is the way I talk to the residents is, I say you've got two different types of heart. Those who've got compliant ventricles, which are like young elastic bands, where you can stretch them along any bit of the length, and they'll always always pump out what you put in. Or these the stiffer hearts, which are like an old elastic band, where the resting length is slightly longer. You can still get something out of it if you stretch it, but you can easily overstretch it. So you've, right. you've got a, a, a smaller sweet spot, basically. And these are probably the patients now that people are recognizing are the ones that really benefit from having minimally invasive cardiac output monitoring during major surgery.
0: Right. And so uh, minimally invasive uh, is what you were mentioning, the monitors that either use the um, – either are completely non-invasive, right? So they might go around a finger and uh, use uh, essentially uh, the – uh, changes in uh, you'll you'll have to tell me, but changes i think in in maybe capillary pressure or whatever they're measuring as a, and then others that use the arterial uh, line which is obviously slightly more invasive is that right
1: yes yeah, so, so we've got the pulse contour wave analysis there's different manufacturers, some of them look at the uh, the shape of the waveform slightly differently, but the principle is is you 've got the upstroke, which is contractility uh the area under the curve is obviously the volume. And then the way the the curve decays reflects the arterial compliance. So it gives you uh, some idea of what's happening with the arterial uh, circulation. Um, There are non-invasive ones where you inflate finger cuffs and it tries to maintain the pressure. And from that you can actually infer what's happening to the blood pressure. And it seems that those are getting more and more accurate now. And that's very exciting because obviously you know, if we can use things not even more non-invasively, it helps. Right. Um, then we've got other ways to measure flow. Uh, we've got bioimpedance or bioreactants. Uh, and we've also got the uh, ways of looking at, at aortic blood flow by either transthoracic echo, uh, trans-esophageal echo, and also the esophageal Doppler.
0: Right. Okay. And so... Uh, is there, uh, you know, do do these? I mean, obviously, the difference for the ones that just to go or a little cuff around the finger is that it doesn't require any anything invasive. Uh, are there advantages or disadvantages to ones that use an arterial line versus ones that use a, a an esophageal a manometer? What, you know, why would one choose one versus the other?
1: Yeah, I, I think what's important is that. Everyone is always looking for absolute numbers in medicine, and then people always compare things to the pulmonary artery flowcafter. I think uh, in elective surgery, what's important is you're looking at fluid responsiveness. So what you've got to do is learn how all these tools actually reflect the fluid responsiveness. And the ap- absolute value doesn't really matter. So if you've got a, uh, the stroke volume off an arterial line or off an esophageal Doppler, or off bioimpedance, it it really doesn't matter whether it's telling you an an absolute stroke volume, it could just be 43 bananas. The key thing is, is if you optimize the patient after induction of anesthesia, and, and maximize the stroke volume before the injury, and then you get them back to that value at the end of surgery, as I said, when it's all over, you've basically optimized that patient's heart and cardiac function and returned it to normal at the end of surgery. And that's a good place to land. So whatever tool I use, and I use all of them, and you said that it is horses for courses, you've got different pros and cons, which I'll come to in just a second. But the overview is if you can tip a patient head down or use a passive leg raise on the operating table and the stroke volume goes up however you're managing it, then that basically, that patient's got easily recruitable stroke volume. Okay. So we then give a 250 fluid push, up to the point where if we repeat that, that, it doesn't go up anymore. Whatever that is, that is then what I consider normal for that patient of optimizing their cardiac function. And that's where I try and return them to. And also during the surgery, it will be a useful indicator of what's going on and whether we've got a problem with flow. So I think people worry too much about the absolute numbers, and not so much on the trends, because it's fluid responsiveness that really is important. Because we can't give the patient a heart transplant; all we can do right. is optimize what they've got. Um,
0: and that's really that's really interesting. So, so you're saying that um, basically, as long as if giving fluid causes your cardiac output to go up, then that you're heading in the direction you want. It doesn't really matter if that's taking their cardiac output from 4 to 5 or 3.5 to 4 or 5.5 to 6. It, the number is less important than the direction.
1: That's true, although I would like to make clear the reason we use the passive leg raise or head down is I think one of the studies that's been well known, the chance and Struthers study, uh, which basically drove uh, the stroke volume in, an, in a fit group and they gave a lot of fluid because basically if you've got a fit compliant heart, if you give a fluid bolus, the stroke volume will always go up. So the reason we use the passive leg raise or the head down is then you're only looking for easily recruitable stroke volume, not really challenging them with a fluid bolus. And, gotcha. that, and that means it even works in people with fit hearts because then you're just basically setting the revs at what is your, your cruising altitude. You're not, you're not just pushing it up a bit more because the heart's being overstretched. So that's why we've chosen that technique over just giving fluid bonuses.
0: Okay, gotcha. So you try to get a feel from not without giving fluid because that's going to give you, you're not kind of pushing it, you're just doing on their natural blood volume, just increasing venous return a little bit and then seeing how they react to that.
1: Yeah, we're basically saying, is this patient truly hypovolemic? If you touch them head down. They, they will put their stroke volume up, because you and I will do it slightly. But, but the more you do this with patients under anesthesia, I think you realize it's actually a very good way of doing it. And, and, and it's, it's why you get this safe zone of about 10 ml per kilo, you know, of people might need 500 or up to a liter. Uh, most people will need two, two fluid boluses, if not three to four, and then you, then you, you know where you are and they're optimized.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Now, you had mentioned that open surgery is different than laparoscopic. And so yeah. why why is that, and what do you do differently in laparoscopic surgery?
1: Okay. Well, we, we optimize the same. I think then this comes in nicely with what you're saying. The monitors measure different things. So if you've got an esophageal Doppler down, the advantage is you're measuring aortic blood flow in the descending aorta. So it gives you peak velocity, which is your contractility uh, It gives you the waveform, which is useful because you can tell whether someone's hypovolemic or whether uh, they might be vasodilated due to an epidural or anaphylaxis. And it also gives you flow time corrected for systole, which, again, is very useful too because once you've set your normal flow and a normal stroke volume, you can titrate vasopressors and get a normal FTC, and you end up with a balanced circulation. So the advantage of the Doppler is it tells you how high you're flying how hard your engines are working, and how fast you're flying. Um, Whereas some of the other tools are are really there to reflect just stroke volume. So, for instance, bioimpedance is very good at estimating the change in direction of blood flow in the thoracic cavity, and from that you can estimate stroke volume and map the trends. Uh, And again, we would put the bioimpedance pads on prior to even sometimes starting anesthesia and getting a baseline for that patient. So, again, we're setting the patient. And where do those pads go? They, get, they go over the chest. Uh, different. Uh, I mean, there's, there's one very uh, popular one over here. I, I don't want to advertise because it isn't the role of this program. Uh, but you just put them on the natural chest wall. They are special pads because, obviously, they have to have a certain electrical impedance, and they need sure. a good contact with the skin. And when I put those on, I normally put the or uh, dressing on it, so that if the if there's any water that uh, or fluids that's spilt during surgery, it doesn't lose contact. Okay. Um, and then there are other uh, other things you can you can you can map not just stroke uh, volume, but you can work out the the, the peripheral resistance and also your thoracic uh, lung water content, which is also very useful, I think. Uh, obviously, uh, we'll come back to pros and cons, but if you're measuring things through the chest, then obviously it means that thoracic surgery is probably out for that group uh, if, you're, if you're doing that. But for intraptomal surgery, it works very well. Uh, with okay. the arterial pulse uh, you know, analysis, uh, there, there's some that use the, uh, just the waveform with different algorithms and some that use pulse power. But essentially, that gives you a stroke volume estimate Uh, and also newer monitors are actually uh, there's some algorithms now something called hypotensive predictive index software coming out the the amazing thing about this is uh, we have actually piloted it uh, and and it does seem to work we've done rock curves which seem to be accurate but the nice thing is it's not just for the anesthesiologists it divides basically of, of what is the cause of the hypotension and it looks at both Stroke volume variability, i.e. preload, it looks at contractility in the upstroke, and then it also looks at something called EA diet, so it's giving you uh, vascular resistance. Hmm. The power of this is if we carry on this into the post octave period, so at the moment we're using it in liver transplants just uh, kicking off, is it will give the bedside nurse a way of knowing whether they should be giving volume or titrating the vasopressor. So I think this is very exciting for the future. Uh, yeah, and, and, it's like and,
0: having a PA catheter in.
1: Yeah, and, and the key thing, I think, is, is not really necessarily to guide us in the operating room because you've got an anesthesiologist or, or CRNA who are very skilled. What it gives us now is a tool that can guide post-octave use so that we don't have to be bedside all the time and try and maintain optimization of flow and pressure. And we know that both are very important. Um, So you can see that, 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 so that gives you one, I I suppose, one advantage of an arterial line is a lot of patients get arterial lines and you can carry it into the post-operative period. An esophageal doctor tells you more where you are, but it's more difficult to do in awake patients. Bioimpedance you can use throughout the procedure and take into the uh, ICU or the PACU as well. So it, it is horses for courses and in our institute we use all of these. And we and we have preferences not just for the type of surgery, but you'll find different attendings have different preferences as well. And that's of course as well as transesophageal echo in in cardiac in and livers as well.
0: Of course, have any of these been looked at? You know, head to head. Do we know? Do we have any any actual data on whether one is better or it's so far no.
1: I think that's a tricky one to say because it's how you use it. And a lot of the goal-directed fluid studies, they classically use this to a give a fluid bolus and optimize the stroke volume or the FTC on a esophageal Doppler. We've had Optimize, which used uh, basically pulse contour, in fact, pulse power wave analysis. Uh, so I, I, as I say, I think I'm trying to get away from saying one's better than another. I think what's important is that we use them appropriately And we track the changes because they all have got good evidence base and they they all seem to work. Uh, And it's getting familiar with them and making that work for you in the right clinical circumstances.
0: Sure. Okay. And you said that the non-invasive ones are, we think, getting better. Because I think the criticism that, you know, a few years ago I was hearing was that the non-invasive ones were just not accurate enough to be helpful. Now, that may not have been true, but that, that certainly was some people were saying that. Now you feel like the non-invasive ones give you at least the the trends that are helpful in in the same uh, to the same degree as the
1: invasive. Yeah, well, I think you fit the general trend. So if you're using the non-invasive arterial waveform in a obstetric cesarean section, a high-risk patient, rather than waiting for the blood pressure cuff to go up, even if the the non-invasive arterial pressure is not absolutely accurate. The, fact, the very fact it's trending down is giving you a important right. information. And I think that's the way we need to look at these. It's, it's not just absolute right. values. It, it's getting early information and fixing the problem before you get a disaster.
0: Right. Okay. And then we were talking before about the difference with laparoscopic surgery, and that is uh, – how does that play in?
1: Yeah, I think all of the monitors are difficult to use in laparoscopic surgery because – Traditional teaching is that the patient, when they are basically with a pneumoperitoneum, they get reduced preload. In our studies, in in volume-resuscitated patients, that's not true because, in fact, a lot of them are head down as well. So you've got more than enough preload, but the problem is on the afterload. And the crazy thing is if you think about millions of people having laparoscopic surgery and there's only about six studies on the hemodynamics... On the pneumoperitoneum, and we've done, I think, four of them at my last centre in Guildford, and those were using various different devices. So we were using combined devices on many cases, but we showed that basically you get a change in aortic blood flow and a reduction in cardiac output, and the and the heart gets loaded. And if you've got a, a heart which has got poor compliance, it can really back up, and you get very low cardiac output and stroke volume. So we did another study to try and optimise the heart. And in fact, what we found was the way to do that was to reduce the afterload and drop the uh, intra-abdominal working pressure down to less than 10 millimetres. And if we did that, the the heart was much better and maintained the stroke volume. So that's one thing that we need to think about, especially in large obese people with hypertension and diastolic dysfunction, is operating at lower pressure.
0: And tell me more about that. So, like, how how did you do that? What, how did you lower the pressure? Do you mean by having the surgeons use less pressure? In them?
1: Yeah, just make sure that they've got you've got muscle paralysis on board, what everyone terms deep block. But it, it, it's purely because if you're using a peripheral nerve stimulator, the abdominal muscles get function back before you've got it on your ulnar or your right. facial nerves. So, so you use a postoperative count that makes sure you've got full abdominal relaxation then they're much more likely to be able to get down to a lower working pressure and not lose their their view. It's different if it's robotic or laparoscopic. Laparoscopic, you're more relying on a a drum stretching the peritoneum to give them the space, whereas robotic, you've got the advantage of the robot helping. uh, So you've got a little bit of retraction. So it is easier with robotic surgery compared with laparoscopic. But I think people need...
0: And what post-Titanic... Sorry, you said you mentioned you know using
1: Uh, a PTC of two is what you need. That's what Jennifer Hunter recommends. Who is one of the gurus in uh, neuromuscular function.
0: Gotcha. Okay, Um, so that is quite deep. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it it is. Um, So, uh, but now we can reverse neuromuscular blockers more easily. So it's not such a problem. So the the real problem you've got, you see, with all these cardiac monitors is that if you've got this increased afterload and you've got also high intrathoracic pressure because your head down and being ventilated against the resistance, you've effectively got a mini, uh, almost a mini tension pneumothorax or cardiac tamponade on the heart. So this can give you variability in your stroke volume and your pulse pressure variation, even if you filled the heart adequately. Purely right. because you've got this change in preload and afterload straining the heart. And and it can make things very difficult to interpret. And that's why I think our advice for the laparoscopic robotic surgery is get them optimised before the pneumoperitoneum, uh, and then follow your clinical judgment and then maintaining flow and pressure. And then at the end, once the gas is out, the legs are down, the patient's flat, re optimise again. And right. then you then you reperfuse everything back to normal. So it is tricky. All of them are challenging uh, during that type of surgery and open to misinterpretation. Uh, so that's why I think it's important we use our clinical judgment as well.
0: Right. Okay. So the lesson is uh, with open surgery, you can get really good information, and um, you know really try to optimize throughout using that. Keep in mind that in.
1: Yeah, they all, they all work in open surgery very well, right. all these devices, I think. But it's laparoscopic, which is more challenging.
0: More challenging. So optimize early and then kind of, you know, use your judgment, pay attention to the patient throughout the portion where they're insufflated, and then reassess and optimize once, the, uh, once they're no longer using, uh, once they no longer need the pneumoperitoneum. C- correct. Um, All right, that's really useful, really good information. Um, And uh, I think I'll be excited, and I know a lot of people will be excited as these monitors become more and more available to uh, learn how to use them and and see what kind of information we can get from them. Um, Is there anything we haven't covered that you think we should touch on before we sign off?
1: I think it's just to reemphasize that we need to get away from this idea of restrictive and liberal. It's all about giving the right amount of fluid at the right time. And even giving the same amount of fluid during surgery, if you give it in, diff- in different ways, will have a different effect. And I think that's what the relief study also showed. So you need to give the right amount of fluid going on to positive pressure ventilation, maintaining flow and pressure through surgery. And then uh, and that's different from giving not a lot of fluid at the start, giving it all at the end. Right. So it's the right amount at the right time.
0: Absolutely. Well, Mike, uh, that's fantastic. And now is the part of our show where we uh, give a recommendation to our audience, something fun they can check out the next time they have a chance. Um, do you have anything uh, you'd like to recommend?
1: Uh, yes. Well, I think I'm a real fan of these podcasts because I think uh, I do a lot of my CME now, driving to work and home from work. It's And they're, and they're really good way of getting a lot of useful information. So I think there's another fantastic uh, – Thing called Top Med Talk, which is hosted by Monty Mythen, who's the professor at University College London, uh, based on the evidence-based perinatal medicine uh, program, and you'll find talks there on everything from fluids to vasopressors and another bunch of international experts. So I'd like to refer you to them.
0: Fantastic! So Top Med Talk.
1: Top Med Talk, yeah, and you can download the podcasts.
0: Fantastic! I will try to put a link to it in the show notes, um, and I will check it out myself. Thank you. And uh, I am going to—I recently uh, gave a talk down at um, Baylor Scott and White uh, Hospital down in Temple, Texas, uh, affiliated with Texas A&M, and I—it's—it's it's about an hour from Austin. Anybody down there? Anybody who has a chance to go? I had the best barbecue that I've ever had. I was—they took me to a place called Terry Black's. Terry Black's Barbecue in Austin. And I'll tell you, there's a very famous place called Franklin Barbecue. You have to wait four or five hours in line for Franklin Barbecue. But we didn't want to do that. So instead, we went to Terry Black's. We showed up at 11 a.m. when they opened. We didn't have to wait at all. And it was unbelievably good. So... I'm not enough of an expert to know if this is just Texas barbecue in general is fantastic or if it was unique to this place. But if you're down in Austin, check out Terry Black's. I have no affiliation with them. I make no money off of their products or food, but uh, it was delicious. So I highly recommend that if you have the opportunity to go. And a huge shout out and thank you to the folks down there at Texas A&M Scott and White. Uh, We're just so kind. Such great hospitality. Mike Hofkamp, who listeners will know, was just the best host. The chair down there, Dr. Russell McAllister, was wonderful to meet and incredibly um, gracious in having me. Clint Tippett, who is the PD down there, uh, doing a fantastic job and was really great to get to spend some time with him, too. It was wonderful to meet the Gillespie family who sponsored the lectureship. Uh, They're really wonderful people. And, of course, all of the residents, med students, and fellows who I had just a wonderful pleasure to meet. Uh, Thank you. It was wonderful to meet all of you, too. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. All right. That was fantastic. I hope you learned a lot, as I did. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment that everyone can learn from. Let us know if you agree with the um, uses of these new monitors, how you use them, if you use them. Uh, We'd all be interested in hearing what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and the podcast is at ACRAC Podcast. You can also join the Facebook group. We have an ACRAC Facebook group, and the conversation continues there as well. All right. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating, even if you've already done it even if you've already done it twice. If it's been a while, you can do it again, and it really helps others find the show. We really appreciate that. And, of course, if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash acrac. That's patreo dot com A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also donate anytime at paypal.me acrac. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. A huge thank you to our intern, Kimia Cooley. She is tearing it up on the social media sphere and uh, putting out some great content, questions of the week, some Flashback Friday episodes, uh, some really interesting polls. So check out what she's doing and join in the conversation there. Huge thank you to Brian Park for the uh, outlines he does for some of the episodes. And, of course, our original ACRAC music is by the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today for Dr. Michael Scott and the ACRAC podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.